Uh, last time I was here, I was uh, during my holiday. We came to Downend for uh, the morning. Um, and uh, one of the things that was mentioned is you were going on a church weekend. And I, I've heard good reports of that. The question I had was, was there enough lemon drizzle? Because that seemed to be a thing. Uh, so was there enough? And was there, a, was there a, a queen or king of lemon drizzle crowned? Was there... Uh, no, oh, no one's... Who, whose was best? No, don't, don't. Uh, um, please turn your Bibles to Romans and um, chapter 1. Uh, this church, uh, thankfully, joyfully, is a gospel church, a church that loves the gospel and is, um, preaches the gospel uh, rejoices in the gospel. That's what we've done this morning as we've, we've sung together. And uh, I thought this morning that we would spend our time uh, just, and um, maybe I shouldn't use, just f- focusing on the gospel. Uh, what it is, where does it come from, what's its purpose, what's it about? Uh, why are we, we doing that? Well, why am I doing that? Because I forget, so it's good for me. You forget too, so it's good for you. We, we want to know it because it helps us to live well for Christ. We need, we need to know it so we can share the gospel. We can tell others about it. Some this morning maybe know it in their head, but don't really know it. You know, you can know stuff. I know lots of stuff in my head. I forget lots of stuff too, but we need to know it in our hearts. It's a word of intimacy and of delight. And so as we go through the gospel, that's, that's the hope that we have, that we would delight in the gospel, rejoice in the gospel, glory in the gospel even. The title of the sermon is The Glory of the Gospel, and we're going to look at it by um, kind of cheatingly. We're looking at the first few verses in Romans, uh, but we'll, we'll jump around a bit in Romans too. Um, so let me read for us Paul's summary of the gospel that he preached, that he loved, that he suffered for, and that he gloried in. And in doing those things, he is our example. So let's read from Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant, or more literally, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those who in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so reads God's word to us. 
Paul, we're told, is an apostle. It just means a sent one. He's been commissioned by God to go on a mission, and the mission is to preach the gospel. And he is eager to come to Rome. Verse 15, he tells us that. He's not been to Rome as he writes. He doesn't know them. He's heard about the Christians in Rome, but he's writing to them, and he's eager to go to them and preach to them the gospel. But they're already Christians, so they know the gospel, and he, he wants to be with them. He's eager because he wants to tell them the gospel again. And then because he can't quite get there as quick as he wants, he, well, he writes a whole letter on the gospel because he wants them to know it and know it more deeply and love it more deeply. And so that's Paul's mission. And he is not ashamed of the gospel. He tells us in verse 16. It's his boast. It's his rallying cry. Uh, a boast is a, it's kind of a battle cry. That's what he, he's going with, the gospel. Now the question then, to begin with, is what is the gospel? I don't know how many times I've said the gospel in these first four minutes and 32 seconds, but quite a few times. But what is the gospel? Because we, we use it frequently, don't we? I'm sure you do in this church, we do in ours, and in these kind of similar churches to ours, we, we, we'd say the gospel, but, but what is it? And what's the glory of the gospel? Glory is to do with weight and significance and value and worth and honor and majesty. So what's the glory of the gospel? I think there's six points. There's six at the moment. There might be uh, more or less. Who knows? The glory of the gospel, point one, is that it is good news. It is good news. That's the meaning of the word that Paul uses, that he has set apart for the gospel of God. And just note that it's the gospel. Not a gospel, but the gospel. It's, it's definitive. It's exclusive. I mean, there's other good news, but this is supreme in all of the good news in all of the world throughout all of history. It's, it's good news. In fact, to say good news is kind of downplaying it somewhat. The word means a, a declaration of victory. It would be the word that is used of a messenger who would come reporting victory in a battle. And, you know, in, in ancient times they would come into the city and they would proclaim good news. The victory has been won. Or you would know it from Luke chapter 2. I think it's 70-something days till Christmas. And soon we'll be reading, reading Luke chapter 2. And we'll be reading of the shepherd and of the angels. And the angels say, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Or, or behold, I bring you gospel. I bring you good news. Which is for all the people, what? A Savior has been born to you. And this good news contrasts the terrible news that Paul brings to our attention in chapter 1, verse 18 onwards. Just cast your eye there for a moment. The wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And for two and a half chapters, Paul tells us the bad news. And it's, 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 it's terrible news. He tells us, and he summarizes it using this statement, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. We've fallen short. We've rebelled against God. We've doubted His goodness. We've denied His deity. We've sought satisfaction away from Him. And now we are under His wrath by nature. That's God's settled anger at sin. We, we can have a wrong view of God's wrath. Because we lose our temper, don't we? Do you lose? Anyone here lose their temper other than me? My voice was getting better until my son came home from school on Friday. And then it went... <laughs> That's my anger. Often uncontrolled. Often unreasonable. That cannot be said of God. It's perfect. It's just. It's righteous. It's settled. It's a wonderful thing because it judges sin and responds to sin as sin should be responded to. And we sit under that wrath by anger, by, by nature. That is bad news. And it's not just us, that's the world. Your friends and your neighbors, perhaps you, if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, uh, God's wrath is being poured out on you. That's what Paul says in Romans. And so this good news that Paul will spend most of the book <clears throat> of Romans declaring is in sharp contrast to the bad news. And so this is good news for the sinner. This is good news for the sufferer. The proud need to hear this good news, and so do the humble and broken. Paul addresses in the letter the issue of church unity. There's a divide between Jew and Gentile, the two kind of big cultural groupings in the church. And his way of doing it is, you are all under the wrath of God and there is one way of salvation and that is Christ. You have one Lord, one God. So any difference is insignificant in regards to the gospel. And it's a, a message to be preached to the nation. And because it's news, how you receive it or how you feel about it doesn't make a difference to its truthfulness nor its goodness. You, you know on the, the news, we've just had the news with the, the, the death of the Queen. Regardless of how you felt about it, 
That didn't change the news, did it? The news was still the same. And that was bad news. It was bad news, whether you thought or not. It was news. It happened. It was an event. And the gospel is something that has happened. How you respond to it, how you feel about it, it's still objectively true and good. So it's good news, okay. The glory of the source of the gospel is God. Where does this good news come from? Well, we're told, aren't we? It's the gospel of God. Now, when we hear news, and increasingly so these days, we should check out the source of the news, shouldn't we? Like, where does it come from? Can I trust the person giving me this report? I I don't know where you sit on the whole fake news thing. But I think we could fairly say that some news is fake. It's not real. It's untrue or perhaps skewed in some way. And once we know someone who has told us fake news, we think, well, maybe we ought not trust them. We, we are suspicious when they say something again. And so the source of good news or the source of news is, is important. And here, the source of this good news is God. And what are we told about God in the whole book? Well, there's lots to say. But let's just scan a few, a few things. Because when we think of God... We need to think clearly about the God that is and the God that, has, that is who has revealed himself. And Paul, just in Romans, tells us this about God. I won't read all the verses. You can look through them. He is the creator, chapter 1, verse 20. He is, he is powerful, chapter 1, verse 20. He is everlasting or eternal and not created, chapter 16, verse 26. He is sovereign, verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He is loving, Romans 5, verse 5. He is gracious, chapter 8, verse 32. He is righteous, chapter 1, verse 32. He judges, chapter 1, verse 32. He is patient and kind, chapter 2 verse 4. He is wise, chapter 11, verse 33 to 36. He is all of those things and each one of those attributes or characteristics would be worthy, well, of several sermons. So the gospel comes from a God who is glorious, who is not insignificant or petty or needy or created or lacking in something. No, it comes from the source of all life, all goodness, all wisdom, all love, all joy, and all peace. It's his message. And we could add, he speaks. He has made himself known supremely in the gospel. And so the gospel is a message from the wise, patient, righteous, gracious, loving, sovereign, powerful, creator God. And so the message is wise and loving and gracious and just and righteous and true and powerful and brings life. And so we are to listen to it. And we are to hear it. And we are to hear it again and again and again. 
as I mentioned, Paul is eager to go to Rome to preach to the Christians the gospel. And he wants to build unity and he wants to build up passion that they would go on mission with him or at least support him in mission. And Paul says, the way to do that is to look into the gospel. I'm not sure this next one counts as a whole point, but it's a sub-point at least. The origin of the gospel. The glory of the origin of the gospel is that it's ancient. And I've got in my notes, be quick in this bit. I have. No, I'm not, I'm not joking. Just quickly, look. That he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so it's old, it's ancient, it's not new on the scene. Paul's not coming out with some new message that's never been heard from anyone. No, it's ancient. It, it begins Genesis 3.15. I think you can go a bit further than that. Genesis 1, even in the creation account, there are seeds of it. But you've got Genesis 3.15, when God promises to send a deliverer who will crush the serpent's head. In Ephesians, we're told, before the foundation of the world, it's proclaimed by the prophets, verse 2b. There's one way to be saved. Paul's saying the Old Testament and the New Testament are one story. Prophets didn't have one message and Paul another. No, there's a, a continuation. Sure, things change, but in the Old Testament and in the New, salvation was by faith. We can get confused with that, with all the ceremonies of the Old Testament and the temple and the rituals. But it's all by faith. And it's all by faith in the new. Preserved in Scripture, in the Holy Scriptures. We could trust it. And so the Old Testament that Paul is referring to contains promises and pictures, and patterns, and people, and places that all point to Christ. And if it's not about Jesus directly, then it tells us of our need for him. And so the origin of the gospel is ancient. The glory of the content of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Notice it's good news of God promised beforehand concerning his son, verse 3. The gospel is not a set of practices, nor a process, nor behaviors we perform. No, it's a person. It's Jesus. It's who he is and what he has done. His person and his work. What are we told? <coughs> Sorry about that. I should warn you. I'm going to cough in a minute. <coughs> Concerning his son. What are we told? Well, we're told that he's his son. He's a son of God. And he was declared to be that not that made him the Son of God, but shown to be the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead. But, but first of all, he is the Son of God. The Apostle John makes that clear. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, talking about Jesus. 
Jesus, through the Gospels, we see does the, the works of God. He creates, He forgives sin, he, he sends the Spirit. He walks on water. I think I did that last time we were here. He walks on water. He receives worship as God does. Thomas at the resurrection says, my Lord and my God. He has the attributes of God. He is sinless and he is sovereign. He takes the name of God, I am. The apostles refer to him as God. Paul in Titus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, he is given a quality or shown to be equal with the Father. As Matthew re records the words of Jesus, commanding his disciples to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He's the Son of God. And we should just note here, this is kind of a sub-point again, that the gospel is Trinitarian. Can you see that how Paul shows us how the father concerning his son, so there's a father and a son, and the spirit of holiness raises him. And Paul's, Paul says it's concerning his son, who is the supreme revelation of God, but Paul's focus on Christ doesn't diminish or exclude the role of the, or the character of the Father or the Spirit. Why? Because Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in this good news. To know Jesus Christ, Christ means anointed, is to know the Spirit, anointed Son of the Father. And that's to be Trinitarian. So we're told that this Son is the Son of God, so he, and He's the same as God in His attributes and characteristics. He's the Son of David, according to the flesh. I mean, He's the King promised to David's line. David is promised in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring and he shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and I will build it. he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what Paul's getting at. This, this Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises to David of a forever king, as the children, children's book puts it. And not only that, he's a son of David according to the flesh. He is truly human and truly God. At the incarnation, it just means uh, to put on flesh. You have chili con carne. Chili con carne? Yes, chili with flesh. Carne, flesh, right? That's how I remember. Incarnation. In the flesh. And so he is truly God and truly man. He brings both sides together. Not to suggest any wrongdoing on God's part. But he is uniquely qualified to reconcile holy God with sinful man. Because he took on flesh. He became like us in every way except he knew no sin. Now, there is a great mystery in what I've just said there. Hopefully you understood it, that Jesus is both truly God and truly man, 
And then you went, I don't quite understand that. Good. He is totally unique. Totally unique. There is, he is like no one else in that regard. And there is great mystery and great wonder. And, and Jesus is worthy of great worship because of that. And so he is truly God, truly man. What are we told that he does? Well, he is risen. And the fact that he is risen from the dead implies, doesn't it, that he died? And we're told, Romans 4.24, that it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ died for our sin. He did something. We, we sang about how he stood in our place condemned under the judgment of God. And he really died. And he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And it's the resurrection, Paul tells us, that is the declaration to all that he is the Son of God. The crucifixion of Jesus was unique in one sense. Because on the cross, the Son was condemned by the Father for the sins of his people, not his own. But in another way, the crucifixion or crucifixion was an everyday event in the Roman Empire. Brutal, yes. Crucifixion was common, but resurrection was not. That's what makes it unique. There's thousands were crucified, but only one risen. It's a staggering claim. But the apostles traveled and preached and suffered and died with that message. And all they had to do was recant. No, he's really dead, but they would not because they knew it was true. A man may live for a lie, but he won't die for one. And Jesus rose again on the third day, never to die again. As he walked out the tomb, it was a declaration of victory over sin and death and hell and the beginning of the new creation. And we're told Jesus is Savior. Can you see that in the text? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, Yeshua. Just means the Lord saves. His name is a declaration of what he came to do. He's the Savior. Christ means anointed, anointed with the Spirit. And so he came to save. What's the extent of this salvation that he brings through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension? Well, we're told throughout the book of Romans, here are just a few. In Christ, as we trust him, we are justified. That means declared righteous. 
That's the opposite of condemned. Romans 3, verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Christ's righteousness is accounted to us by faith. We're forgiven the language of debt. Chapter 4, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 32. Adoption. Romans 8, verse 15. Our alienation from God is over. And the reconciliation is quite wonderful, isn't it? It's not that we've just gone from enemies to bearable people, but enemies to beloved sons and daughters. I mean, that's the wonder of the gospel, the accomplishment of Christ. We can even cry, Abba, Father, dearest Father, to the one whom we have so sinned against. Peace with God, Romans 5 verse 1, the war is over. Eternal life, death is conquered, Romans 6, 23. And joy and hope, Romans 5 verse 2. Sorrow will one day be destroyed. So the glory of the gospel is its good news that comes from God about his son, Jesus Christ. Then we move to the call of the gospel. Paul tells us the call of the gospel, the obedience of faith, or the obedience that comes from faith. What are we to do with this news? This wonderful news, this wonderful announcement about things that have happened in real space-time history. Well, Paul tells us it's for faith. We are to believe it to be true. It, it, a command comes to believe the gospel. Well, let's just think about that for a moment. It's a call. Paul, as I said, Romans 1, 18, Romans 1 verse 18 onwards, for about two and a half chapter, just he doesn't pull any punches and he shows us all to be sinners. And then he shows us the gospel. And he says, believe the gospel. Believe what Christ has done. So this couple of applications this morning. One of the, one of the uh, privileges, I guess, of preaching in a, in a church where you kind of know people, but you don't know them that well, is you maybe can be a bit bolder than you would. Uh, so here goes. <laughs> there are some amongst us who are not Christians who are not trusting Jesus Christ. And, and some of you may be younger ones and you have been brought up in homes where your mom or your dad or grandparents have told you about Jesus and told you of your need for him and you have heard and you have listened and the truth is just out there still. And really, it being out there still is you've just rejected it. And so, my appeal, my challenge, my plea is that you would trust Jesus. 
It's the only way of forgiveness of sins. The only way of eternal life. Paul makes it really clear. Religious upbringing doesn't save you. Obedience, even trying your best to obey the Lord doesn't save you. Only Christ. Only Christ. It says to non-Christians and to Christians, believe the gospel. That's, 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 believe the gospel. Maybe you are feeling guilty for sin this morning. And maybe you should be guilty for sin because you really have sinned. Believe the gospel that Christ died for sinners. But believe it. Maybe this morning, and this is a danger for us, that we're pride Christians. It's really an oxymoron. But we think I've done okay this week. Well, maybe you have. But your performance this week does not improve your standing before God. And if you think it does, you're in all sorts of trouble. The gospel shows us that our performance is not that great. We should want to follow God. We should want to follow Christ and obey Him. But Christ lived and died and rose again because you couldn't do what was required to stand before a holy God. And maybe this morning you're in the midst of sorrow and confusion when the gospel is good news amidst bad news. The world's full of bad news on all sorts of levels. It's a light in the darkness. It brings joy in the midst of sorrow because the gospel declares there is a God. And whatever circumstance you find yourself in, His love is so great to you and you can see that because He sent His Son. There's no greater love to be shown no greater gift to be given. And so there's faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't just leave it at faith. Does he? It's the obedience of faith. The two are different. Faith is trusting or depending on. But obedience is to obey. They're separate, but they're they're separate, but they can't be separated. They go together. We're told Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lord, our Lord is is someone in command. It's the language of master, the one who rules. The Bible knows nothing of believers who don't obey or don't want to obey. And obedience is just the outworking of faith, isn't it? It flows from faith. It comes from knowing that God is good. It's a lot easier to obey someone you know is good and loves you than it is to obey a tyrant. 
even if it's hard. And there is none whose goodness is greater or whose love is stronger than Jesus Christ. And so when we remember that the commands come from the one who loves us the most and cares for us the most, well, that changes it, doesn't it? How we obey, because it's good. It's Paul's argument, Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, on all that I've just said about the goodness and mercies and grace of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so there is a call to obedience in this text. Now you may begin be beginning your you're a new Christian, well, maybe baptism is the step of obedience that you need to take. Believe and be baptized. And the gap between the middle, as short as possible. Or maybe in your marriage, or at work, or what you watch on the screen. We're to obey faith, trusting in the goodness of God in the gospel that leads to obedience to follow Him. And you're in a church who, that, that is full of grace. And I know your pastors. And I know they're sinners. And I... And they know they're sinners. It's not a shock to them, I don't think. Pete's nodding, Matt not so much, but there we are. <laughs> and, they, and I know some of you as well. You want to extend grace to people who struggle with sin. You are not alone. And Paul calls us into the gospel community of the church. And we struggle together and we suffer together. And we obey together because we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. I don't know what point I'm on now. The reach, the glory of the reach of the Gospels, it's to the nations. Notice uh, there in verse uh, 5, for the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. This is not a message to be kept to yourself. This is a message to go out. Paul in Romans 10 is, is clear. No distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's the same Lord, Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It's a message to go out to the nations. That's Paul's passion. He is so... Every time you read one of Paul's letters, don't fail to miss. He's just his his little asides about his salvation story when he calls himself chief of sinners. He means that. And he is so blown away by the goodness of the gospel, he wants to share it. He wants others to experience the joy and the forgiveness that there is in trust in Christ. So the reach of the gospel. And then as we close, the goal of the gospel is the glory of God in Christ. Can you see that? For the sake of his name. Paul's aim is not 
So we all go, wow, Paul's amazing. He wrote Romans. No, Paul's aim is we go, wow, God's amazing. <laughs> he gave us the gospel. What does Paul mean by this? For the sake of his name, well, for the glory of God. He, throughout his letter, he throws in these, these lines of praise at the end of some truth. He's talking about judgment, and he talks about how God creates in chapter 1, verse 25. And then he says, who is blessed forever, amen. He can't help himself breaking out in song, as it were, on the page to, to thank God. Or to him be glory forever, amen. The end of, uh, end of chapter 11, or at the end of the book, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. And so the point of the gospel, as people respond to it, is to bring glory to God. Now, we can't make God any more glorious. We can't add to his glory. Paul means that we recognize how glorious he is. Now, that isn't arrogant on God's part. That's glorious on God's part. Because we were made to know him, to delight in him, to enjoy him. But sin, our sin, separates us from him. And the gospel, that is Christ, restores us to that glory, redeems us. Our sin, we are told, causes us to fall short of the glory of God. And the gospel restores us to greater glory and goodness. And God being glorified and your good are not opposing aims, but united purposes. Just think, when you sing, we, we sang some wonderful songs this morning, declaring the praises of God. And I saw some of you were, were clapping, some of you smiling, some of you hands raised, because you were enjoying doing that, right? We love to sing. And what are we doing then? Well, we're glorifying God. And we're enjoying glorifying God, right? There's no, there's no, not opposite ends. The hymn writer had it right in Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. The gospel of God is the most glorious message about the most glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, God's only Son. And we receive him by faith. We trust in him for forgiveness of sins, for righteousness, for eternal life, for hope and for joy. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that we did not deserve to hear. 
but you have brought to our ears that Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And our God and our Father, we praise you and we bless you and we glorify you. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to delight in the gospel. Help us to proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Help us, we pray. Amen.